Welcome to the FPC Thomasville podcast. We believe human life has a designer, so learning to live by design will help you thrive in all your spheres of influence. Today, Dr. Tim Filston's message is titled A Silent Power as part of the Silent Night Sermon Series. The scripture passage for today is Luke 2, 1 through 7. Almost can be a sad word. One proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Our human reaction to disappointment can often make us guarded. Some disappointments can even leave a mark. So fool me twice, shame on me. However, the Christian life carries us beyond the bitterness of dashed hopes. Christmas signals new hope that begins now. But what should we expect of God now? Knowing that God's plan and power to renew all things is already at work yet not complete, how do we set our expectations of His power to satisfy our needs? Today, let us consider what it means to have our loyalties and loves reordered before they might be fulfilled. The theme is Silent Night, letting Christmas speak for itself. Today, we're going to be considering the silent power of Christmas. Did you know that the gospel is called the power of God? The power of God to all who believe. The gospel itself is a power. From the word of God, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Would you open your Bibles I'd love to hear some pages turning within the next couple of years, you know, just you, you say, open your Bibles, and I hear pages, and people are opening their scripture, not the phone, not their phone, but maybe seeing their, your kids seeing you open the scriptures and show them where that is in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, but it is on the screens as well, so would you follow along this morning? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be Registered. It's a census. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the same, in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, the gospel, of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, bless us now not only to our minds to understand your word, but to our hearts that we may believe it, that through our hands and feet we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You almost made that basket. All right. You almost did it. 
And sometimes almost is used like that, right? And sometimes it's used like this. You almost made the plane, right? You almost caught that plane. Our world is full of almost. You know, it, it has just enough allure, just enough sparkle to it, just enough to draw us in and then break our hearts. The world is an almost kind of place. My uh, fourth grade teacher, Mr. Schweitzer, used to say, whenever we use the almost, I almost did it, he'd say, almost is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Horseshoes and hand grenades. Don't think about that too much. <laughs> the horseshoes part, I guess, is uh, an appropriate image for Sunday morning. You're almost there. There's a certain part of our daily living that is almost enough, isn't it? And so sometimes what we do is we become stoic, so we become platonic, we become Gnostic. What does that mean? That means we, we lower our expectations about what this world can deliver us. And we think, well, by and by in the sky, we'll have pie, right? And so we have this great division or disconnect between heaven and earth that is not really accurate. Because the gospel, the gospel is that God has come near, that God created the world, that God is in the process of recreating the world. That's the gospel. See, the, the problem isn't having enough expectations. The problem is that our expectations are, are on the wrong frequency, that we need to adjust the frequency of our expectations. Because you and I often don't know what we want. Our dashed hopes, our dashed expectations are because we don't really understand what we want. What if you walked into a room and you could get exactly what you wanted, like your deepest desire, and then everybody knew about it? Everybody understood what you really were, were spending your time thinking about wanting. You know, let me tell you a quick story about this. I've, I've drawn endless sort of lessons from that amazing movie called Chariots of Fire, right? I've mentioned it maybe a dozen or two times, and I haven't mentioned it in several years, so it's time to talk about Chariots of Fire. And they need to redo this, because I, I showed this to my, 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 uh, my kids a number of years ago, thinking, this is going to dazzle them. And, you know, you go watch Chariots of Fire, and it's just like really slow, really long. Anyway, but there's one part that's not so slow. It's gripping, and it's where, in 1924, Harold Abrams, true story, Harold Abrams, wins the 100-yard dash in the 1924 Olympics. And there's this scene in the locker room with all of his competitors, and some guys are coming, coming by to congratulate him, and one guy just seems a little too excited for him, and Abrams is downcast. And one of the competitors says to him, sort of as an aside, he says, someday you're going to win something, and you're going to see how it doesn't quite do what you thought it would do. This is an almost world. We're almost there. It has just enough allure to break your heart, to get you to invest, and then sometimes to dash your hopes. And the reason is our expectations are not quite what they should be. The family gathering that, that's ahead of you or behind you that you, you hung so many hopes and expectations on didn't quite get there. See, the gospel, the gospel is an announcement that 
that things are going to be different from here on out, that things are beginning to be different. The gospel was used for Caesar Augustus. I mentioned in, in the scripture here, the gospels were used for Caesar Augustus to say, and, and for, for, for the other Caesars, that when a new Caesar came to power, they would use this word, euangelion, good news, angelion, you can hear the word angel in that, the messenger of God, that, that, that the new leader was, was, uh, was bringing in, ushering in a new kingdom. And so you would say, well, will the roads, will there be as many potholes? Will the tax structure be the same thing? Will they suck us dry all of our excess cash as a result of this new Caesar being here? The, the, the good news was, was formed around the idea that, that this new leader was going to bring in an, an entirely new set of expectations here and now. And so a lot of times we think the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Peanuts, according to Gandhi or whatever, the gospel according to, but the gospel is centered on Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. Not just about Jesus, but, but what happens when you invest in the gospel of Jesus is there is a power in your life now that makes life different, not just by and by in the sky. And so let's take a look at how the gospel adjusts our expectation frequency by helping us reorder our loyalty to this world and our loyalty to our loves, our loyalty to the kingdom of God. First, seek first the kingdom of God, right? You've heard that. You don't know what it means. I don't either, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. How do you orient yourself? It's this sense of loyalty, this personal sense of loyalty to the kingdom of God, not just first and then you get on with your business, but first and in all things, right? And then your sense of loyalty to what your desires are, your loyalty to your desires. So the expectations adjusting to the frequency of the kingdom of God by our loyalty to the kingdom and our reordering of our loves, reordering of our loyalty, reordering of our loves. Does that make any sense? Let me say it one more time. If you don't have the right expectations, we're not saying that you should just lower expectations so you'll stop being disappointed, right? In this almost world. It's a matter of dialing in on the kingdom of God and understanding that your loyalty to that kingdom needs to be reordered and your loyalty to your loves need to be reordered. First, loyalty to the kingdom. What's happening here is, in this, in this passage is, there's, there is reference, a reference to genealogies. The genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke. Now, you might notice, if you read them closely, that they're very different. That, that the, the lineage uh, is, is different. And some people have said, well, gosh, you know, uh, how embarrassing. Uh, you've got two different gospels and two different lineages of Jesus. Well, you do a little bit more digging beyond the USA Today level of reporting. And what you discover is one is a lineage that goes through Joseph's line, and the other is a lineage that goes through Mary's line. 
This is really important. Now, have you ever read the genealogies? I just want to pause there just to see if anybody actually has. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Admit it. No, somewhere in there, you haven't exhaustively read them. Somewhere in the middle of that, you know, it's like Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. How do you even say that? All right, I'm going to go on to this next verse after that, right? Maybe you've sort of plowed through some of the genealogies, but what's the significance of it? Here's the significance. Joseph's line goes back to Jeconiah. And that's the Greek version of the Hebrew king, Jehoiakim. Jehoiachin, sorry, Jehoiachim. Jehoiakin was Jehoiachin's father. Now, see if you can follow this. Jehoiakin, or Jeconiah, is the great, 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 great grandfather of Joseph, the father of Jesus. Jeconiah was the last king before the exile to Babylon. He was dethroned by the Babylonian king. You and I live in exile. The entire gospel, when read through Isaiah, helps us understand the fact that the kingdom of God coming brings us slowly out of exile. Slowly but surely, there are seeds of new life, seeds of a new kingdom. You can't understand the New Testament without, without Isaiah, in other words. And so when you understand that, that this lineage of Jesus going back through Joseph to Jeconiah, you recognize that that, that lineage is cursed in exile, cursed, that no longer will there be a a king on the throne of David through that lineage. So how can Jesus be the Messiah? Well, there's another lineage. Jesus relates to the, to the, the, to the throne of David through Mary. And so when, when you say that, that Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary, you have to understand there's an asterisk there, that legally Jesus has been, uh, uh, his, his lineage goes through Joseph, but genealogically his lineage goes through Mary. And so the idea here is that the Messiah, the real and true father of the Messiah is not Joseph. It's God. And in God bringing together heaven and earth, bringing the kingdom near, bringing his new, this new seed of new life through the Holy Spirit, God binds together the cursed and blessed lines of the kingdom of God and the lineage of David. And so, so the Messiah is both related to the kingdom of David, but also, as Jesus says later in, in, in the book of John, my kingdom is not out of this world, right? My kingdom is not of this world. That the kingdom for peace to be made had to come from above. Now, that's a lot to take in, and that's a lot to think about. But, but that is an encapsulation of the entire uh, uh, historic record of 
the kingdom of Israel sent into exile, the promised Messiah, the, 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 the incremental fulfillment of it along the way, and then the fulfillment of it in Jesus. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with loyalty to the kingdom of God and my expectations? Well, here's, here's what, what was going on at the time of, of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was ordering life around his own kingdom, right? His priority was not the kingdom of God. His priority was the kingdom of Jeconiah. And so he was going around looking for power, power in his own hand. Someone said, what is it? Atlas said, give me a, a, a lever big enough and I can move the world. He was always looking for a bigger lever to move the world. And that's our problem. We so order life around our own power. We are loyal to our own power. Our loyalty is to the kingdom of this world as a result. When you're trying to make life work for you apart from God, you are being loyal to a kingdom of the world. And so am I. Let me, let me personalize this a minute. Let's just imagine, for example, let, just you think, how can you, how can, now how can we take all of this history of this reference to Isaiah and the exile and, and these lineage of kings and these two genealogies and this, this whole history, how does this apply to me today or this week? Imagine, imagine you are really ticked off at somebody. And you go and you talk to someone this week. You say, you know what? I'm ticked off at, at this person over here. I'm really upset with that person. And you know what? This is why. They're, and, and I think it's an issue of character. And they're really, they're really upset. They really upset me. And they did these, these several things. And that person looks back at you. And what you're expecting is, yeah, that's right. That person's a jerk. I can't believe they did that. And I, I, you're, you're exactly right. You know what? I'm, on your, I'm in your corner. I'm on your side. I'm on your team. I'm with you in this thing. That person, that should be ashamed of themselves. Do you trust that person now? Oh, emotionally, we do. Sadly, we do. Emotionally, we think, yeah, I can trust that person. They're on my side. They're in my corner. Until they leave the room. Now, this is an experience you don't like to have, but look at the contrast. You say the same thing to that person, and that person looks back at you and says, well, have you talked to him? Have you, have you, have you explained to him how you feel about this? You know, I've, I've noticed that, that sometimes when you don't get what you want, when I don't get what I want, sometimes we read the situation, uh, and you're reading, I think you may be reading this person a little bit too harshly. I think you, and you think to yourself, you're not loyal to me. I can't trust you. You're loyal to the other person. No, that person is somebody you can write down as someone you can trust when you leave the room. That person is loyal not to you, not to the other person, but to something more profound, something more constant, the principle of truth. See, that's what it looks like to be loyal to a kingdom that's not of this world. The way you and I operate in terms of power is we try to make might right, right? Might makes right. And we try to get people on our team and we try to hook arms and we try to plow our way through this world and, and do it on our own. And we find that lever that's big enough and we move the world. But then you can see 
how destructive it is to relationship, how destructive it is to truth when we operate apart from God. And you can see how powerful it is, how quietly, silently powerful it is to be loyal to a kingdom not of this world. You see how that practical experience illustrates the point that Jeconiah was not loyal to the kingdom of God. And as a result, he was deposed, he was in exile, and that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves out of sorts, our expectations not too high, but out of frequency with what we should expect in this world. And so sometimes what we do is we lower those expectations, we become stoics, we think we're not gonna have any more expectations of of the alluring world and have our heart broken again and again and again when what we need to do is dial in, raise our expectations, and have them simply ordered around a kingdom that is present and coming. Here's how Lewis puts it, C.S. Lewis. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians, the, the Christians begin the most for the present world just are the ones that thought the most of the next. The Christians that do the most for the present world are the ones who are thinking the most of the next. Now, is that of heaven? Hang on. The apostles themselves who set on foot for the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great ones who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. These are practical things, right? Things of this world. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Now he's using heaven in quotes, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and get neither. Are you seeing how we're to be reordering our loyalty around the kingdom of God, not so that we'll be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but so that we tune into the frequency of the kingdom of God and can leave an enduring mark to invest ourselves in the things that matter to the things that endure. Second, We need to have our loyalty to our loves reordered. We need our loves reordered. We're loyal to our loves in the order in which they naturally come to us, our desires, in other words. The way desire presents itself, the way we react, the way we naturally uh, interface with our world around us and the people around us. We're loyal to the ordering of our desires, but they need to be reordered. The problem with Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, the problem with that king was idolatry. Idolatry isn't just where you carve out something and you stick it there and it sort of centers your your thinking and your heart and your, your, your mind, soul, heart, and strength on this little image of God. It is more powerfully the image in your mind that has your heart. 
What had Jehoiakim's chart, a heart, Jehoiakim's heart? What had his heart? His own desire for security. His own desire for, for life to be ordered in a secure way that he had control over. Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, made an idol of the security of his own rule in this world. He made an idol of it. He thought, well, I'm, I'm the chosen one. I'm the appointed one. I'm anointed for this purpose. And so, so those rules don't apply to me, you see? And whenever we start to say that, we begin to orient ourselves around ourselves. So how do we reorient then our loves, our desires, around something other than ourselves? Yeah, there's a story about this. Now, it, you've heard this story. Every one of you have heard this story. And but you've never heard it applied this way. So there's a guy who was trapped in a flood on the roof, right? You've heard this story, right? He's trapped in a flood on a roof and he's praying that, that God will save him. And a guy comes by in a canoe and says, hey, jump in. And he says, no, I'm praying to the Lord. The Lord's gonna save me. And he goes on and then somebody comes by in a little motorboat and uh, he says, hey, jump in. And he says, no, I'm praying the Lord's gonna be faithful. He's gonna save me. And then a guy in a helicopter comes by and lowers a rope and says, hey, you know, hook into the harness and I'll pull you up. And, and he says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm uh, waiting for, for God. He's gonna save me and then the, the flood rises and he dies and he goes to heaven. He says, hey, what happened? And, he, and God says, well, I sent you a canoe and a boat and a, and a helicopter. Why didn't you get in? You know, so that's, that's the story. So what is the canoe? And, and sometimes when I tell that story, people are like, ha, 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 that's funny. <clears throat> but not this time, evidently. <clears throat> because you've all heard this story before. But let's apply, let's apply the story to the issue of the loyalties to our desires and the reordering of our desires. What is it? What if then? What if the mall and Amazon and that thing that's shiny that you want and perhaps even that dream that you have that may be too much about you. What if that's not forming you in a way that is good for you? What if gathering with God's people, what if showing up in the morning before dawn, what if the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, what if these habits of the heart are like the canoe and the motorboat and the helicopter that form us the habits that form us, that reorder our desires. Augustine said, sin is simply the disordering of our love and that the kingdom of God is the reordering of our loves. What if these rituals, when vested more with your heart, not just a box to check, hey, we did church, not just... A, a, a devotional to go through. Okay, yeah, I read that section. On next. And what if these habits need to have your heart? What if the Christmas season is one of those places where you can vest meaning again in a way that's weird, that's different, 
It's not at the mall. It's not on Amazon. Can you imagine what Luther's kids thought of the first time when he brought that first Christmas tree home and had cut down that little pine tree and stuck it in their living room and started putting candles on it? Can you imagine that conversation, the kids sort of noticing this and and maybe finding mom and the kid, mom, there's something wrong with dad, right? I mean, he is, what is, come, come check this out. You know, the first Christmas tree was, was Luther's way of putting an image right in the middle of their living room to say, look, here's life. You know, here's an image of life. Here's a sparkling image of life, of things to come, of an evergreen life. What if the liturgies of the season are calling you to vest meaning such that the power of the gospel, as Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for all who believe. What if Christmas is your opportunity to tune in to the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you retune our hearts this morning? From loyalty to a kingdom of this world, from a disordered list of desires, to a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom for which we were designed a kingdom that continues to echo in this world that's so full of grandeur and so full of brokenness, a kingdom and a world that continue to draw us in and remind us you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Lord, through the silent power of the gospel, would you find us again and reorient life around your kingdom that is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.